a science story, huh? And I just thought, well, I figured it out. It was that golden moment because science was on my side. Hello, everyone. Welcome to the Story Collider, where we bring you true personal stories about science. I'm your host, Catherine Wu, and this week our story is about the great lengths we go to when chasing down science. Without giving too much away, there will be some small, ferocious mammals featured in this week's episode, and I just so happen to have two such creatures in my own home. My cats, Calvin and Hobbs. Some people say cats aren't domesticated, but my two boys really make me wonder. One of them would rather snuggle and play fetch than be anywhere near the great outdoors. The other would much rather be eating grape stems and plastic than meat, which is deeply stressful. But I can't complain. They love hanging out with me. This week, our story is from Katie Moriarty. It was recorded at the Jewel Box Theater in Seattle, Washington in November, 2022. The theme that night was surprise. I'm a research wildlife biologist, and I have the great privilege of working with rare and elusive species. But this can also be an emotional crisis because by definition, rare species are extremely difficult to find. (laughs) So it's really hard to know if your job is to look for them in a very specific way and you do not find them when you expect. Are you entirely incompetent? (laughs) Or are you sadly too late? My best story about this is during my first research project, and I'm high in the Sierra Nevada in this great mountain research station, and it feels like Stonehenge. This place has the deepest history of Martin biology scholars. And if Martins weren't already your favorite mammal in the weasel family, I think I should convince you. Because otters and ferrets and honey badgers, they're just okay. Martins are equally playful, curious, and so vicious, they are terrifying. They're about the size of a 10-week-old kitten. Also very adorable. You should look it up. (laughs) So like my predecessors, I'm in this cabin in a mountain meadow, and I have a bed and a desk and a shelf, and I have every single piece of literature, every map, every note, highlighted, cross-referenced. I know where every Martin has been in 28 years. Now I'm going to write my own chapter, and I have been preparing for months. I have all of these boxes out in the field, and every day I walk three to six miles through the woods, and I collect binders and binders of footprints looking for Martins, and I collect binders and binders of rodent prints. Squirrels, voles, Sometimes a spotted skunk. After two months, I'm wondering if it's me. So I start working seven days a week. I expand my grid 15 miles. I go anywhere anyone's ever heard of a Martin. And I find nothing. I have to go back to school, but I vow I'm going to come back in winter. And I vow I'm going to find a Martin. Time goes on. I come back in winter. 
and it's completely different. There's a gate at the highway, and it's a two-mile snowmobile or ski into the station. Everything's winterized. It's all closed down. Now I'm living in this garage turned into an apartment. I have a bed, a desk. I have a heater, which is new. <laughs> and I have a bathroom, which is fairly nice, except for every time the ground freezes, sewage comes up through my shower. Oh. Yeah. But despite my accommodations, I am fully invested. I have borrowed remote cameras that take a picture if motion or heat passes by, so any animal that passes by. I have borrowed snowmobiles so I can get to these places. I have skis, and I have borrowed winter clothes so I could survive. And I go out similarly every day, and it is so much harder. Some days in Truckee in this winter, it snows 18 inches in an hour. To get to these stations, I need to really, really push my physical limits. And every night, I strip off my snow gear and I look through these photos. After a month of looking through photos, I start talking to the walls. And I'm telling them exactly what I see. Snow. 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 Douglas squirrel. Ooh, a spotted skunk. One March morning, I'm going through these photos and I'm talking to myself just as I always have been. And I see a photo that makes me paralyzed. I'm looking at an image. My heart speeds up. My breath almost stops. And I just am so confused. I'm looking at an image. It's the only one picture. It's of a butt. It is the worst picture you could possibly take of an animal. No, no head, no body, just a butt. <laughs> but it looks like a bear that someone spray-painted white stripes down the side. The only thing that I think it could be, which it's impossible to be, is a wolverine. A wolverine hasn't been seen in California in over 85 years. I do what any wildlife biologist would do. I jump on the bed and scream profanities. <laughs> I run back to the computer, it's still there. I run back to the bed, I jump for a while. And then with all the grace I have, I put on all my snow gear, which is not graceful at all. And then I run out the door, down these snow-created stairs, through a pavilion, to this outdoor phone. It's the only way to get out of the research station. There's no cell service, so I dial my calling card number, my PIN, my supervisor's phone number, and I call him, and I leave a frantic message. But he's not at the office at 6 a.m. <laughs> so I run back, check the photo, it's still there. I try to email it to him, Wi-Fi is really bad. A dozen times I run back and forth trying to make calls. He actually picks up the phone around 9 a.m. when you normally show up to work. <laughs> I discuss what's happening and he leaves me with two things. One, don't tell anyone. Two, you need genetic evidence. And I get it. I get it. I'm a wildlife biologist. We rely on our credibility. If I start saying we see Bigfoot run around in the woods, no one's ever going to take me seriously again. And two, California wolverines are super special. They're most closely related to those in Mongolia and Eurasia. So this would be a unicorn if it was a California wolverine. So I think, OK, what am I going to do? I'm, I'm, I need to do something. And I take a breath and I go get a bigger jacket. <laughs> and I call everyone I know from Northern Washington to Southern California, and I don't tell them what's going on, but I urgently tell them what to bring and to come to me as fast as they can. 
Objectively, I can't even find a little Martin. There's no way I can do this by myself. <laughs> and my last call is to my mom, my most reliable resource. To her, I have a shopping list, because that's what you do, mom. <laughs> like, can you pick up enough barbed wire to fence a several farms? <laughs> can you grab a lot of four by fours? Can you bring our chainsaw? Can you bring drills? Can you hurry? <laughs> I also asked her to get my brother on the line. He's an excellent chef. He's cooked everywhere in the world. And he said he'd come too. So within 48 hours, the station is alive. We've got French toast at 6 a.m. We've got biking music for some reason at night. I have no idea why. And I am in central command giving people tasks to go to the farthest away places. In less than a week, we have 100 stations out. Detection dog teams have searched 60 linear miles. And we have all searched the area the size of San Francisco. All the while, we're trying to get a lot of genetic evidence, which means shit. We're picking up every <laughs> shit we could find in the woods. And we're putting them in paper bags. And before I could send them to the genetics lab, I need to dry them. The only way I could think of drying them is to put them in a garland above my heater. <laughs> so here I am, I've got a hundred scats drying, not 10 feet from my bed. No. I'm starting to hate the mystical Wolverine. <laughs> a week goes by, everyone goes home, and I'm also hitting depression yet again with my little mini violin of sympathy and sorrow. And I walk outside, and I see something that you would never guess, which are wolverine tracks. They came to my stinky ass window. <laughs> the wolverine had walked down the road past my door sometime in the night. I got to follow that wolverine. My face was a smile, cracked to the brim. I took so many digital pictures. You know, if you're like a really proud mom, like here's a footprint. Here's a footprint with a Sharpie. Here's a footprint in the sun. Here's a footprint in the shade. Here's a footprint walking. <laughs> and then I realized almost when it's going to get dark that wolverines might have white hair. And I am looking at snow. So I crawl all the way back. And I did not find anything. Another week goes by and I get to a camera. And at this camera, there's barbed wire there's three pictures of a wolverine. There are four hairs and two flakes of scat smaller than a dime. That's the only evidence we got from that entire endeavor. From that, we learned that that wolverine was a male and it walked from Idaho in the Sawtooth Mountain Range. Wolverines can travel really far in 2009, a year later, a wolverine named M56, moved from Montana to Colorado, and in 2016 was shot in North Dakota. During my entire project, I found Martins at 10 stations, and Wolverine at three. And what I learned was, if you have a dynamic group of individuals that could come and support you, who could come and try to find things that are impossible, you could achieve a great deal. So when a friend calls you and asks you for something real crazy, show up. You never know what you could accomplish. Thank you.
Katie Moriarty. Dr. Katie Moriarty is a forest wildlife ecologist who has spent her career studying elusive forest-dependent species. She's considered a leading expert on the Pacific Martin, a small mammal in the weasel family. She currently works as a senior research scientist with the National Council for Air and Stream Improvement Incorporated and lives in Corvallis, Oregon with her family. All right, before we continue with today's episode and dive deeper into the science of Katie's story, a couple reminders. We have shows coming up in Boston, New York, D.C., and more. Get your tickets and find out more at storycollider.org shows. And if you'd like to learn more about how to tell a science story, check out storycollider.org education. We offer private workshops both online and in person for groups, and we offer public courses for individuals online. And for more updates and cool behind-the-story pictures and other awesome content, follow us on social media. We're on Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, and now TikTok. Find us at Story Collider. And finally, if you're a fan of this podcast and if you, like us, believe in the power these stories have to reveal the humanity behind science to change our understanding of how science happens and to whom it belongs, please consider donating to the Story Collider at storycollider.org donate. And if you're tired of listening to ads on the podcast, you can also sign up for our Patreon at patreon.com slash thestorycollider. Our Patreon supporters receive an ad-free version of this podcast, as well as occasional bonus episodes and other gifts. We're so grateful to everyone who helps make our work possible. Now we're back with Katie to talk more about the science in her story. Katie, thanks so much for joining us. To start us off, tell us a bit more about how you got into the rare species game. You point out what a tough job it is. Why were you drawn to this line of work? Yeah, I was a technician with the Forest Service. And for that entity, we worked on a lot of species and a lot of different uh, projects. But the thing that really brought me in was the three combination of having a huge challenge with endless curiosity and the need to really integrate a lot of creativity. So uh, I talked a little bit about how the challenge was really difficult and you have a lot of uh, emotional and also physical endurance that you have to engage with. Um, We learn more every year about rare and endangered species. So there's a lot of curiosity of how we could really integrate some of the science into our our knowledge about their ecology. And then uh, it's just so interesting how many common tools are used to do science in this field from things like gun brushes to get hair from animals to uh, those signs that you would put out in front of your yard for political posters. We could change those into a survey device. Oh, that's really cool. And I guess it doesn't hurt that a lot of times you find yourself encountering some pretty cute animals in your work. Uh, You talked a little bit about your obsession with Martins. Why are they such a favorite for you? And did you ever find any on the expedition that you talk about in your story? Yeah, Martins are, of course, this big capital P personality. These animals are about the size of a kitten and they are outrageous. They're shy and bold and aggressive and very cautious individuals. Uh, During this particular study, we did find Martins at some of our devices, I think 10 by the final end of the winter survey. So we got to see them and uh, they're very exciting. 
Is there anything that a Martin can do that another weasel-ish animal cannot that is really exciting? Yeah. So Martins have a lot of unique traits. I I think I'm rather fond of the fact that they are highly arboreal. They could turn both their radius ulna and their um, tibia fibia, so their, their bones and their legs, 180 degrees, which means what? they can, I know, they can move <laughs> up and down and sideways on trees more agilely than a squirrel. They can go any direction. So it's like this three-dimensional landscape that a Martin can climb. That's so cool. I'm so jealous. <laughs> but of course, the the big cameo in your story is not a Martin, but a Wolverine. And I was so struck to hear that a big part of the stakes in your story is that Wolverines have gotten so rare in the part of the country you were looking. What happened to Wolverine populations and you know what's being done about that? Well, there's a few things. Of course, in California, at this point, there might just be one wolverine, if not zero. Um, and I think the reason why they are so rare is is back historically, one, we trapped them for fur pretty mm. extensively. And two, they were poisoned extensively. So when people were trying to get rid of wolves in, in the day, they would drop aerially strychnine poison baits. And because wolverines, martins, fishers all eat carrion, or dead animal, essentially, mm -hmm. they would find those giant airdrop strychnine baits and consume them rapidly. Wow. I mean, did it work on the wolves or was it just collateral damage all around? Well, there also were not wolves in California until a few years ago. So it, we did a great job in the West eradicating a lot of species. Uh, and wow. that was for different reasons. Um, but currently, let's see, uh, they are in slow numbers throughout their range. So really low population sizes, very small densities. If you think about wolverines, their home ranges are 100 to 600 miles. So to put that in perspective, right, on your low end, the size of Sacramento, Las Vegas, Seattle, that'll fit one wolverine. Wow. And and then if you think about bigger cities, even like Houston or Los Angeles that have two to three million people, still probably just one male Wolverine. It's a lot of real estate. It is. They need an extensive amount of space and normally in these rugged, remote, snow-covered areas. There's not a lot of available habitat essentially for them. Uh, females will den in snow dens, so they make these giant snow caves. And so one of the predictive models show that wolverine persistence in North America is related to snow cover and seasonal snow cover. And that's really a challenge in the future. Hmm. Is there anything that humans can be doing now from, I guess, scientists to people who aren't professionally doing science but still want to help? Is there anything we can do to, I don't know, bring those wolverine populations back up? Yeah. So there's a few things. Uh, certainly there's uh, regulatory um, listing if we do think that those populations need additional help. A lot of research can help. And then the, the typical person could be aware of the suite of carnivore species or, or species in these high remote areas. And when they're out uh, backcountry skiing or uh, snowmobiling or in areas that are similar to where wolverines would live, just really pay attention 
to uh, tracks and animals themselves. Right, though, I don't know how a wolverine might feel about being found out in the wild. Do you think they ever enjoy the company of other animals? There are some instances that these solitary animals that are essentially loners do actually have friends. And rarely you can see two males together or a male and a female together or a male raising the kit. So there's new information that wolverines might be slightly more social than we ever anticipated. Yeah, it's got to get lonely wandering around a patch of land the size of Houston. (laughs) I know. Yeah, it's hard because um, unlike most of your lazy cats and dogs, your canids and your felids, uh, these animals are moving around every day to like a really high input. So for a any of these, they're eating 25% of their body weight every day. And if you have eaten 100 hamburgers today, Mm-mm. and if you didn't eat 100 hamburgers, you would be really, really hangry. Mm-hmm. That's the type of style they have. They're roaming, trying to find food at any given moment. I connect with that deeply. <laughs> perfect all right well any other fun wolverine facts to share yeah so one of the really uh interesting things about some of these weasels but wolverines in general is they have delayed implantation so what that means is that they mate from like may to like mid-august that's when they're going to breed But the embryo doesn't implant until March or April. So the female's not really pregnant, but has the egg ready to go. And if she eats uh, a ton of food and is really healthy, she'll implant and have one to two, maybe three kits. And if she doesn't have a lot of food, if there's a food shortage, she won't have any at all. So that sounds like amazing birth control. Right. Yeah, it's all about limitation. And it another thing about both male and female wolverines and martins and others is they don't become sexually reproductive until they're two years old. So And that's late. It is late if uh for Martins at least, the oldest one I've ever captured is seven. So if you and most of the time like three or four, if you think about these animals, if they're if their age limit is five, six They don't start having kits until they're two. And they have one kit on average, occasionally two. It's not a lot of uh, reproductive output. Right. Well, they have to focus on their careers first. So, As do we all. Yeah. (laughs) Uh, Amazing. Uh, Martins and other mustelids, feminist icons. Um, (laughs) But... Let's pivot back to wolverines one more time. Uh, They are obviously incredibly impressive in their own right. What is something else that makes them just really badass? Wolverines are probably one of the most uh, intimidating mammals. They only weigh about the size of a cocker spaniel, so 20 to 50 pounds. But they'll take on a grizzly bear. They'll take on a pack of wolves. They'll take on uh, a caribou by themselves to try to eat it. And kill it. So they're very uh, iconic with Wolverine, the X-Men character. Very uh, extremely bold, capable species. So the X-Men Wolverine 
is a big fan of his claws. But is that actually how wolverines fight or are they more bitey? They would be both. A wolverine would use both their claws and their really powerful muscles as well as their jaws. They can, with their jaws, break through bone more than any other animal. They've got a a really strong connection between their upper and lower jaw and also a really strong muscle to be able to control that. Nothing, nothing could get past a wolverine jaw, really. Mm. That's great. What does animal scat smell like when it's being dried over a heater? Oh, it's horrible. Uh, <laughs> it it uh, is all the pungent nature of a aging trash can in a dog park because these animals are eating uh, small mammals and rabbits and what have you. So it is really rancid and gross. I I can't describe more how awful it could be. We do have dehydrators now. I mean, I've have up my game, so we have lots of food dehydrators that I keep in, say, bathrooms or sheds. I no longer dry scats in my room. I imagine your family thanks you for that. Yeah, um, yeah. Really glad that that is something that's advanced since your story. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> we innovate here. Mm-hmm. All right, I think that is all the time we have. But thank you so much for joining us. We are so grateful to you for sharing your story. Oh, you're welcome. Thank you for the time. The Story Collider is so grateful to Katie for sharing her story and her science with us. The Story Collider is also grateful for the support of Science Sandbox, a Simons Foundation initiative dedicated to engaging everyone with the process of science. This podcast is produced by Aaron Barker, executive director and co-founder of The Story Collider, with help from managing producer Misha Gajewski and senior podcast editor Jun Chen. Special thanks goes out to Story Collider's board and the rest of our staff, including Managing Director Anne-Marie Lonsdale, Science Advisory Fellow Edith Gonzalez, Education Director Lily B., and Operations Manager Lindsay Cooper, without whom none of this would be possible. The story featured in today's episode was produced by Kent Whipple and Juan Carlos Martinez. Our theme music is by Ghost. Next week, Misha Gajewski will be back with stories about our favorite furry friends. Until then, thanks for listening. I'm your host, Catherine Wu.